Hello, this is Philip Schoenfeld, Editor-in-Chief of Evidence-Based GI, and today I'm speaking with Jennifer Kolb of the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Parenteral Nutrition at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. She'll be discussing her recent summary, which is entitled Long-Term Success of Endoscopic Eradication Therapy for Neoplastic Barrett's Esophagus. This is a review of a recently published study in gut, long-term outcomes after endoscopic treatment for Barrett's neoplasia with radiofrequency ablation, plus or minus endoscopic resection, results from the National Dutch Database in a 10-year period. So welcome, Dr. Kolb. Hello, thank you for having me. To start, why is this an important topic to get data about long-term outcomes after endoscopic eradication therapy of Barrett's esophagus with related neoplasia after doing radiofrequency ablation, plus or minus endoscopic resection? So, you know, professional society guidelines really worldwide recommend treating uh, neoplastic Barrett's esophagus. And we have really great landmark trials uh, showing that RFA radiofrequency ablation is extremely effective in eradicating dysplasia and eradicating the entire Barrett segment with rates as high as, you know, 75, 85, up to 90%. And um, these Technologies really haven't evolved that much in terms of the RFA, but what we really don't know, despite having good data showing that they work up front, is how durable are those outcomes? And does RFA plus minus resection up front really stand the test even five, 10 years down the road? And um, so this is really the first study that looks at long-term outcomes in a really large cohort in a really well-designed study um, that really, you know, helps us to understand the long-term effectiveness. And it also gives us some important updates on sort of the timing of recurrence, which we'll talk about. Great. And, and it certainly is an important topic. If a patient has Barrett's esophagus with low-grade dysplasia or high-grade dysplasia, then they're going to want to know what's the likelihood of recurrence if you choose to treat with endoscopic therapy with radiofrequency ablation, plus minus endoscopic resection of any nodules versus, you know, what's the likelihood of resection if you actually went to surgery. So what did the Dutch group do to investigate the long-term success of endoscopic eradication therapy? So first I wanna point out that this study was done at what they call the Barrett Expert Centers. So this is part of an ongoing multi-center prospective registry. This is being done. So in the Netherlands, actually care for Barrett's esophagus is centralized into these expert centers. So there's nine places essentially where the endoscopists are well-trained in how to detect, diagnose, resect, treat Barrett's. The pathologists adhere to a really standardized protocol and care is really centralized. You know that there's a standard protocol and so they took a cohort of patients who presented and they had 1,000 386 patients who came to them with Barrett's with confirmed either low-grade dysplasia, high-grade dysplasia, 
or esophageal cancer, just a low risk, superficial invasive. And these patients all underwent therapy. Now they had to undergo at least one radiofrequency ablation session. This was over a 10 year period from 2008 to 2018. And of course, if any of these individuals who were undergoing RFA also had a visible or nodular lesion, in addition, they would first undergo endoscopic resection, endoscopic mucosal resection, submucosal dissection of that lesion, followed by RFA. Really just to become part of the study, you had to have undergone RFA and then had, um, there was a second cohort, which I can talk about. So there's really the treatment cohort, and then there's the durability cohort, which were all those people who went through a few rounds of RFA, you know, the Barrett's was eradicated, and then they had long-term follow-up. Okay. One point that deserves emphasis is that the endoscopists and pathologists who are providing this care are really experts at doing RFA and doing endoscopic resection of nodules, as well as having expert pathologists confirm whether or not it's low-grade dysplasia or high-grade dysplasia, as well as, as you said, following a very standardized protocol to perform those interventions, as well as to look at the durability cohorts. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about the RFA treatment cohort and the RFA durability cohort, um, how they were assessed and what the study results were. Sure. So the treatment cohort. So these were individuals who underwent usually repeated RFA at three to four month intervals. Um, if there was resection, it was followed by the ablation. If all the dysplasia was flat, they would just get um, multiple ablations. And they did include in the treatment that they could have a touch-up. So these touch-ups could be done if there were, you know, small little islands of non-neoplastic uh, testimon metaplasia that persisted. They allowed for touch-ups of the GE junction, and that was really the treatment cohort. And then of all the individuals who went through, um, had achieved this complete eradication of the intestinal metaplasia, they were part of this durability cohort. And so the timeline for following them was also very well-defined. So they would undergo a surveillance endoscopy every three months in year one, and then once a year, for years two through five, and then every two to three years. Um, I will make note that there were a few sort of natural experiments within the study, which were really fascinating. Um, they sort of changed their protocol along a few different lines. So with regards to surveillance in 2015, they changed the surveillance protocol to annual surveillance. So those Q3 month endoscopies during that first year were just abandoned. And so it created sort of a natural experiment to evaluate if that made a difference. And also during surveillance, you know, they were initially taking surveillance biopsies of the, the neosquamous epithelium according to the Seattle protocol. So this is the four quadrant biopsies every one to two centimeters. And that was for the first half from 2008 to 2013. But again, um, sort of a natural uh, experiment and opportunity to see they actually abandoned the Seattle protocol biopsies and even random biopsies of the cardia about halfway through the study period. And they really just relied on close examination, what they could see with targeted biopsies. Just important to kind of lay all that out because it was really well designed. But of course, uh, what we all want to know is how did they do? And the results were 
great. The uh, rate of achieving complete eradication, so getting rid of all of the Barrett's uh, metaplastic tissue was 94%. So the whole RFA treatment cohort uh, out of the, there were 1270 out of 1386 patients for 94%. Treatment failures were low, only about 6% of the cohort as well. And then when you look sort of long-term, um, they were able to follow 1,154 patients for a median time of about 43 months and recurrence occurred in 38 patients. And so the magic number there is that the annual risk of recurrence was 1% and total recurrence occurred in 3% of patients. So what did these recurrences look like? Well, the recurrences were mostly associated with visible lesions. Most of them could be treated endoscopically. There were five individuals who had advanced cancer that couldn't be managed, but by and large of the 3% of recurrences, they could be managed endoscopically. Those are some really important findings that I think are reassuring to endoscopists as well as to patients to be able to achieve eradication of intestinal metaplasia in the esophagus, whether it be low-grade dysplasia, high-grade dysplasia, superficial esophageal adenocarcinoma, along with eradicating the Barrett's, in 94% of patients is quite a high success rate. And as you said then, that they were able to follow over 1,100 patients for multiple years and demonstrated that the risk of recurrence is only about 1% per year. And if there is a recurrence, it's virtually always something that can be treated endoscopically and that you're not gonna all of a sudden have a patient who shows up with esophageal cancer that God forbid is metastatic, that this approach seems incredibly successful. Absolutely. Yeah, very promising. So what would you say are limitations of the study design for ACG members who might want to apply this data to their own practice? Yeah, I think probably the, the amazing results make me uh, take pause and just remind you know, uh, us here in the U.S. and the way we deliver care for Barrett's that this is really sort of aspirational and this is if everything is done perfectly, right? These are endoscopists who are expertly trained in how to examine Barrett's, how to treat Barrett's. This is probably under a very strict protocol design where there's you know, a ton of follow-up, really making sure the patients are uh, coming at their three to four month intervals. Um, and really, we're also really confident in the pathologic diagnosis. So all of the advantages of the study, um, to me, are a little bit of a limitation in generalizability. So we hope that this 94% number can be preserved in other practice settings, but we certainly have to be mindful that this is really in sort of ideal, optimal practice. So that's certainly one thing to keep in mind. Yes. As, as I look at this, it tells me that I want to refer my Barrett's esophagus patients with low-grade dysplasia to a high-volume center with advanced endoscopists who are very experienced to doing RFA and endoscopic resection of nodules, um, and that in those expert hands, 
we're likely to get a very good result. It's certainly not something I would feel comfortable with since I don't have a lot of patients who ultimately have low-grade or high-grade dysplasia. I do think it's worth noting too that the Dutch program ultimately found that they were just going to do targeted biopsies when they do annual surveillance upper endoscopy and not do any random sampling in the esophagus or in the cardia. Um, I'm curious, is that part of your advanced endoscopy practice? And, and obviously, can you tell us a little bit more about your own practice? Sure. So this is, um, as I had kind of mentioned, it's a really interesting sort of opportunity to see if there's a difference just by a change in protocol halfway through the study. And, you know, the it's reassuring that in this study, they really didn't find any higher rates of dysplasia with you know, following a very strict sampling strategy versus kind of targeted biopsies. And even when they lengthened the surveillance interval and abandoned these random biopsies, there was no difference, at least no statistically significant difference. And, you know, I think really what that says to me is two things. Number one, it means that probably targeted biopsies are okay and better even than random if your ability to detect dysplasia with your eye is perfect. And so I think right now where I'm at in my practice and where I think most of us still are in the U.S. and certainly what guidelines recommend is that we still do adhere to the Seattle protocol that's in the guidelines. And of course, targeted biopsies are encouraged and should always be done. But until we can guarantee that all of us are at that level, um, I don't think we're yet at a point where we can all abandon random biopsies. Maybe there's a little bit of inspiration here, but um, again, you know, from a quality standpoint, we're just not quite there. And then in terms of surveillance, Again, this is certainly compelling evidence that potentially we could consider lengthening the surveillance up front. There's been a lot of mixed data in the past few years showing, you know, when does recurrence occur? Uh, and a lot of the studies do seem to suggest that it, it's not usually in those first few months. If you find recurrence early, it's probably more so just incompletely treated, but true recurrence after a year. So I think time will tell if these results and other more recent results may eventually get incorporated into our guidelines. But for now, my practice is to, you know, really sample according to Seattle protocol, the neosquamous epithelium and to stick to the um, professional society guidelines for surveillance. The bottom line for me is that I prefer the advanced endoscopists who did the RFA and endoscopic resection to do the surveillance upper endoscopy because they are the most experienced at identifying abnormalities as well as they're going to have the capability to do a very good successful endoscopic resection if they do see a recurrence. But I agree with you. I think it would be tough to abandon random biopsies while recognizing that the most important thing to do is probably to do targeted biopsies if you see an abnormality. Do you have anything else that's specific to the way you do your surveillance in terms of using chromoendoscopy or any other changes in how you assess the mucosa when you're doing this? Yeah, so I think good quality exam, whether it's the initial index exam, whether it's 
you know, but while, when you're sort of going through treatment and after should always include a few key things. So um, I always use a distal attachment cap, uh, make a good effort to sort of wash the mucus off, but not, um, you know, suction too much or damage the mucosa. Really, your report should include really standardized reporting systems, right? So is there a hiatal hernia? Where are the different landmarks? The Barrett segment should always be described using Prague classification, um, any visible lesions using Paris classification. And um, those are really just part of any high quality exam for Barrett's. Um, you know, if you are doing uh, biopsies, for Seattle protocol, make sure that you're labeling your jars and separating your biopsy specimens so that you can then sort of come back to that depending on what the pathology shows. Great. I think there's a lot of helpful information and this is certainly a very well-designed study to give us data about long-term success after endoscopic eradication therapy. So thanks very much for talking with us today. Great, thank you so much.